everyone. Welcome back to the Bold, Beautiful, Borderline podcast. It's your host, Sarah, and I'm here with beautiful Lori, who I just gave home decor advice to, which I don't think either of us would have ever thought was coming. So I'm feeling like there's a feather in my cap this morning. No, but um, I'm down for it. It's a good idea. <laughs> and we are here with our one of our favorite baby BPD super feeler sisters. Lucia is going to share her story to diagnosis. Y'all heard from her recently talking about like tattoos and piercings and um, how BPD can impact that, but she's back to tell her full story. So Lucia, intro yourself. Yes. Hi guys. I'm so happy to be back. Oh, it's yeah. I'm so happy to be here. It was such a good episode. Um, the last one that we did and yeah, I'm just like really excited to, um, share my story with everyone. Yeah. We're so excited to have you back. And I realize, like, I feel like I know you obviously we've never met, but like, I don't know your whole story. I get bits and pieces of it dropped in here and there, just like in, super feelers and in social media and whatever, but like, take us back. When did you, when did you feel like in childhood, you noticed you were quote unquote different, right? Like that's kind of, we all have that moment. Do you have a moment like that? Yeah. And I think like, um, I think I was always like, I feel like there's definitely things that happened in your life that like, you know, um, affect your personality or who you are. And then I think there's also just like how you're kind of like born in this world into it already. And I I feel like I was like already a very like sensitive child. Um, that's like, I don't remember a lot of my childhood, but like just from my parents and everyone else telling me that I was always just very sensitive, um, and like needing to be held a lot and sensitive to like, um, you know, textures and clothing and lights and sounds. So I think I just like already entered the world and it was like just too loud (laughs) Um, and not very like conducive to like my needs. So I would say like starting out, it was maybe already set up for failure in some ways. Um, But yeah, I mean, so I think that was like a big, big part of it. And I was always told like, oh, you're so sensitive. Why are you so sensitive? Um, And just like very invalidated. Um, and I think also like kind of, I think where sort of trouble started really happening was, um, my parents got divorced when I was like five and, um, we did, you know, they did, um, um, mutual custody. And so I had to go back and forth between my dad and my mom's like pretty equally. And I really didn't want to do that. I wasn't even upset about the divorce. I was more just upset about having to go to my dad's house, um, because it was a very, it was a, it was a, it was a rough situation for me to be in, especially with my sensitivities. Um, and did you find that your parents are quite different in their parenting style? Because I know that like my, um, I had a similar divorce agreement situation where like I was 10 or 12 when we got, when they got divorced, but, um, like my parents were so different in how they parented. And that really messed me up because like you didn't have that external like regulation almost of like, this is how the world is. It was just like, well, Monday to Thursday, it's this way. And then Saturday, Thursday to Sunday, it's this way. And like, you weren't able to kind of like have a routine. Yeah, no, exactly. That it was, yeah, exactly that. Like the tip, like a stereotypical, if you like divorce or like, um, yeah, it was complete polar opposites. Like my, my mom is more like, um, not necessarily high control, but just like, you know, it's very intentional with her parenting and like, um, keeping us safe and keeping us, you know, like fed and like going to school and like all of those things. And then my dad was more of, um, I feel like a sibling or a friend than a parent for sure. And he was more just like fun and junk food and staying up late and being like riled up and like, um, you know, boundaries being boundaries being crossed and, um, and so that was, yeah, that was incredible, incredibly hard because it's just like, you grew up in those two very different households. And like you said, it's like, this is how my life is from like these days. And then it's the complete opposite the next. Um, so I think, that, sorry, what do you, have, do you have siblings? I have an older sister. Yes. Oh, okay. yeah. And so she yeah, would come with you. 
Yeah. And that was pretty hard too, because, um, she, and I'm not going too much into her story, but like had a lot of, um, behavioral anger issues for sure. Um, and so it was hard being at my dad's because, you know, there wasn't a lot of supervision of how, you know, she treat, we were treating each other, how she was treating me. And there was a lot of like, I would say like, she was probably my first like bully, um, in terms of just kind of beating me down, uh, physically and verbally. So that was really hard. Another reason that it was hard to be there. Um, yeah, it's really hard to name that. I just want to say, I'm like super proud of you for naming that. And, um, on the flip side, I had a moment the other day where I was like in the car talking, I was talking about my brother and I was like, because I'm an older sister and I was like, I think my brother's my little brother. We were little, right? I was like eight, seven, eight. I was like, I think he was the first person I ever split on. And I just started bawling because I'm eight, right? It wasn't my fault. And I wasn't like mean to him from the perspective of like tormenting him. But I do remember being like one second, I loved him and wanted to spend time with him. And the next second I wanted him the fuck away from me. And I, that was like so hard for me to reconcile with. Um, But I want to go back even further because Lucia, you're the first person I've ever heard reference like their immediate like experience into the world I yeah Lori wasn't that I I love when you were just like I entered a world that was too loud for me and I like shivered it was so powerful so I totally agree with you Sarah oh my god I felt so validated because like um I was like a three day birthing process to the point of like almost a C-section and back in the nineties, you know, they used forceps. So they basically just grabbed my head with a giant salad tongs and yanked me out of there. And I didn't sleep through the night until I was five. And I'm, my mom tells me stories about how she would stay up and just cry with me for like five years until I would finally go to sleep. And like that idea of like, it, you can tell, right? Like, obviously I'm not a parent, but that's not typical behavior. And like a baby being like very uncomfortable by textures and things isn't abnormal, but I have to imagine that like your emotional reaction to it was abnormal, right? Like these are things that we have just had. Yes. Yeah. And like, and still like I, cause usually kids will like have, yeah, those tech, like tactile issues and then we'll grow out of them. But like, I definitely have not. And that's like a big like struggle for me still with that kind of stuff. So yeah. And, and, and kind of like, that's wild. Um, with like kind of the traumatic birthing process for you. Cause it was as well for, for my mom, like she had to have a C-section and then the cord was like wrapped around my neck. And so like, that's also, I don't know. I just think that that's interesting to the story. Um, and kind of even going back even further, um, I actually, so my mom like got the news that she was like pregnant and they were like really excited and happy about it. Um, and then she like lost the baby and it was actually like twins. Like it was actually, I was still there and I had a twin that, um, didn't make it. And, um, and so my mom like grieved that, but because they didn't know I was still there and then they were like, there's still a baby. And like, so it was kind of their miracle, um, child or, or whatnot. So it's like, even if, if you kind of believe in, even in, um, trauma starting even in, you know, in pregnancy, that's also kind of interesting to think about. Oh my God. And Again. I'm a Gemini. Full body chills because I was my mom's third pregnancy, but first baby, one abortion, one miscarriage. And like, I have to imagine your mom was so fucking excited to realize like there was this heartbeat in this like baby still, right? My mom was so fucking ready, right? She had an abortion at 15 or 16 and then a miscarriage, not like not very long before she got pregnant with me. So they wanted us and like, and there's so much trauma wrapped up in that. Right. Oh, I totally believe that that impacts attachment big time. Yeah. 
So mom and dad got divorced, chaotic environment. And sounds like maybe at dad's, again, people do the best they can with what they have. And like, you know, that just is what it is. But when do you think your parents started to realize, oh, this is a, obviously they called you sensitive and things like that. But do you think they ever had any inkling of like, no, this is more than our daughter being sensitive? I, I honestly don't think so until like, until like later. Yeah. I really don't think so. Um, they would, they would call it, they would call me going dark when there would like, I would be, things would come up and I would kind of just shut down. Cause I feel like I'm very like, I know it's not technically really a thing, but quiet borderline, meaning like I, in the sense that I don't, I'm not really like explosive out it's more like inside, <laughs> um, yeah. like vile, you know, just like volatile inside. Um, and so I would just like, if I didn't want to, like, if I just like, didn't want to go to my dad's and I was really upset and just depressed up in my room and sleeping for hours and hours because I didn't want to be there. They'd be like, Oh, Lucia is going dark. Like, um, which again was like very, uh, invalidating, but I don't think so. And I just remember being so like angry and depressed and not having like a voice. And that kind of carries out as a theme later on in my life of not having a voice and like that being really hard for me. Um, but I, I honestly, know. I don't think that they ever did. I mean, I think my mom just sort of was like, Oh, she's an HSP, like highly sensitive person. But I think in like high school is when things shifted noticeably for me in terms of like my mental illnesses, <laughs> kind of like a really, um, you know, becoming prominent. And like, that's kind of when I started really in my eating disorder and anorexia, because um, I always had issues with food. But I think when I started high school, it was more an intentional like decision to like restrict food um, and exercise. And that's also when I started cutting myself a lot. Um, like all through high school, I was just like, it was, I was like addicted essentially. I just couldn't stop, but I was self-harming like every day, all day. I would just leave class constantly throughout, throughout the day. Um, and it was just hard and no one knew, no one knew about the restricting, no one knew about the self-harm. And it was just very like, secretive silent suffering has been, has been my, my story. Um, yeah. Yeah. I remember leaving class to go self-harm in the bathroom at, at school, both in middle school and high school. Um, and like feeling that just like instant relief. Right. Um, did you have panic attacks in class? I had, I didn't, I didn't have panic attacks, but I was like always an incredibly anxious child. Like I was always just like clinging to my mom and like, wouldn't really play with other kids. Um, but the anxiety, yeah, the anxiety has just con- like been throughout my entire life, uh, as probably one of my sole I- issues as well as the BPD, but Yeah. And did you have like an anxiety diagnosis at the time or was this all kind of just like you're reflecting back on your life and realizing all of these issues? Um, yeah, I didn't see a therapist until like my first year of college. Um, yeah. And I think my mom had like suspicions of like maybe eating stuff, maybe self-harm stuff. And they had gone through all that with my sister, pretty extreme with my sister. Um, which is really sad, but, um, yeah, no, they didn't know until maybe like my junior year when she finally like saw, cause I was pretty good at hiding, <laughs> you know, like covering all that up. Um, and then she did see like my scars and stuff. And that was like a big, a big thing, but no, I didn't start seeing like a therapist and kind of working with them and getting diagnoses more like instated. Um, yeah, we're just like very hippy dippy, like for, from Vermont, like, you know, um, living in the woods off grid. So I don't, I don't think that was on their mind to sort of have me see someone. Um, Right. Okay. And then, so when you started college, did you seek out that mental health support? 
Yeah. So, um, so then in college, like I, I wasn't so much like self-harming anymore, but the eating disorder was like really a lot worse. Cause it was like, you know, not, I'm not having my mom sort of watching that. Um, and I'm like 17. I like graduated high school early and went on to college when I was like 17 and, um, was really like really restricting binge drinking a lot. And I hadn't really done that at high school because again, it was more like high control, um, at my mom's and I didn't really like ever, you know, party or whatever, like in high school, but then college was just like, I went just like batshit crazy with all that. You with like, like living in campus on yeah. campus. Okay, yeah. Like, yeah. We're away from all of the like home control slash like switching. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, and then, and then she, and then my mom was like, you need to like see someone like for like the, your eating disorder, because it's just like, we're visiting you every few months and you're just like withering away. Um, and so that's when I saw someone and that's when I started my like mental health journey. Cause I've done a lot of programs and therapists and psychiatrists. <laughs> um, but that's when I started like an, I, uh, eating disorder, like IOP. Um, but it kind of came to the point where they were like, you need a higher level of care. Um, and, uh, you need like a higher level of care. And I went to, I was referred to, um, this treatment organization in Massachusetts called Montanito. Um, and I was, I did treatment there for my anorexia for five months. Um, part of it was like residential refeeding process. And then the, the, last two steps were like a PHP partial hospitalization program and then an IOP. Um, and so I had put a hold on college, which was a really hard decision for me to do that. I was really, I was quite upset about that. Um, but yeah, I went to treatment. I was like 18 and did that for five months and then went back to school. Um, and that was a really good program. They're, they're amazing. Yeah. That's so good to hear. So when you were in that program, did you, I mean, presumably you were seeing psychiatrists and stuff like that. So was BPD ever brought up at this point? I know. And that's like, honestly, like so wild about all of this is that like all of the psychiatrists that I saw, all the therapists that I'd seen, like from when I was 17 to when I was diagnosed in March of 2020, like no one ever said anything about that. Like no psychiatrist, like no, like no one ever thought it or mentioned it or anything, which is wild to me. That is, I wonder, like, do you have similar, like, do you have like very like classic BPD symptoms in terms of like relationships? Like maybe that's what was missed. Yeah. And I think I also did have a little bit of a hard time, like fully disclosing to like psychiatrists and therapists. Cause I kind of was like, Oh no, everything's fine. Like oh. I would have a hard time, I think being vulnerable and like honest about what sometimes what was always going on. So part of that could have, you know, just been on me as well for not, you know, fully giving like the full picture, but like, yeah, that was never, they were just like, Oh, like definitely anxiety, definitely depression, maybe ADHD. Um, and then a mood disorder, they just were like, they were like, we don't really know, but we'll just call it a mood disorder or, and then for a while as well, um, a couple of psychiatrists were like, oh, it's like bipolar too, which is typical. I feel like as a, you know, um, well, and I, I also wonder like, I, again, this is such a strange thing that happens in healthcare, but there's so many people who have BPD on their chart that are never told it. And so it would be really interesting to know if like, you know, your psychiatrists were putting BPD traits, BPD on your, on your records, but weren't actually communicating that with you for whatever reason. Yeah. That would be wild. I mean, like I, yeah, that's definitely like, could, could have happened. Cause I just, I feel like I'm pretty classic in terms of like the symptoms, um, like all the symptoms. So I'm not quite sure why that was missed. And I honestly didn't even really know anything about BPD before I was like diagnosed, I like, I didn't learn about it in school. Cause I went to college for social work and we like learned about like, you know, um, bipolar and schizophrenia and like, you know, those top ones, but I don't think we ever really learned about BPD, which is like really interesting to me. I don't quite get that. Um, yeah. I mean, I, same thing. Like I started, 
um, therapy when I was 12 for self-harming and I had an inpatient hospitalization, three intensive outpatient programs, chronic suicidal ideation the whole time. And I didn't get a borderline diagnosis until I was 23, but it wasn't even borderline. It was borderline traits. So I technically didn't have borderline on my chart until I was 25. And like, I want to go back to what you said of like, well, maybe I didn't disclose the full story. That's the clinician's job, right? To try to use their Socratic questioning and their skills-based assessing to learn the whole story. It was never your job to give the whole story, right? Like, I think that they just really don't want to diagnose people with this because again, tw- I started therapy at 12. I didn't get my official diagnosis until 25. And like at 23, when the psychiatrist said, you know, you have borderline traits, probably borderline personality disorder, Dr. Jackson, the psychiatrist and my therapist at the time argued about it for like a year and a half. Cause my therapist didn't think it was true. And I was seeing her weekly for three years. Like, come on. Oh yeah. That's wild. I know. Like sometimes, yeah, I really don't under, I don't understand that. I mean, I guess it is like the stigma, but I just, I've, yeah, I hadn't heard anything about it until like, um, until like I was finally diagnosed. And it's actually funny, like my journey with being diagnosed because, um, <laughs> an ex-boyfriend actually was like, I think you have this (laughs) after we had broken up. Like he, he was like, when we were seeing each other, like, obviously he was like, something isn't right. Or like, you know, something's like off. Um, and then we, I had broken up with him and he had like research. He had somehow like put in what he was seeing that I was like, um, doing or exhibiting or acting. And then like that came up and he was like, I'm not saying this at all to like, put this on you or to say that you definitely have it, but, um, I do care about you. And like, I want you to like, look in, look into this as a potential. And I, I literally like looked up and like read the symptoms and I was like, Oh fuck. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was just like blown away. Yeah. It's like, you need five of nine. And you're like, what about nine of nine? How does that do? <laughs> like 11 of nine. <laughs> <laughs> this, this makes me wonder, Lori, we should do some research on this. I wonder if because the vast majority of clinicians in Canada are meeting people in the hospital when they're in crisis, if they're more willing to diagnose people with borderline there. Because in the States, we don't go to the hospital for mental health crisis unless it is an immediate issue, right? Because it's so expensive and we can get outpatient therapy so easily here. So I wonder if that's why, like when you were like, I can't believe they didn't diagnose you with it. And I said, I can't believe they can't, they are, or, or, I, I can believe they didn't. I wonder if that has anything to do with it. Like more people in Canada are utilizing the ED for mental health than we are. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that for a fact, but I would assume that that's the case just because like, I don't I either. I wouldn't want to spend the money. Right. Like, it, like I would do literally everything I could to not go. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that unfortunately when you, when you do go to the ED, like you're not often even seeing a psychiatrist, I would say like a lot of the time it's a psych nurse that you're seeing and then you're discharged, but, um, can they not diagnose? No. Only psychologists and psychiatrists can diagnose. That's so weird. Okay. So it's so different. I know. So weird. Even even my counselor I was talking to the other day and and we were debating a diagnosis that has been on top of mind. And it was like, do I go and like try and seek out a psychiatrist? Because I can't private pay for a psychiatrist. So I have to wait for like whatever a year to get a psychiatrist or like, is it even worth it? Right. Um, because she can't diagnose, even though she's like specialized in. You can't private pay for psychiatry. No, because it's a, that, that is like a, um, uh, it's like a two, that makes it a two tiered system, which like, uh, benefits people who have financial means. 
So you okay. can't, anything that's covered by like our universal healthcare, you can't pay out of pocket for, because then you're basically like taking those resources away from like people that can't afford it. And there's no clinicians in Canada that are allowed to just practice privately. No. So like I could see a psychologist who could diagnose in Canada, which is not covered by um, our universal health care. So then that I they could get diagnosed. But I mean, there's a lot of lawsuits going on right now, actually, in Canada about like, people yeah, who are there should be. Who are, well, no, it's the other way around. It's that people are like trying to basically like make it a two-tiered system and the government's like you can't do that but anyways it's a that that's a very long like tangent that we could go yeah on. this is your doctorate <laughs> level research because <laughs> oh, like we need in class all the time we yes, need to do a specific to borderline and intensive review of your system versus ours because it really comes into play when we're learning about stories and I hear things about Canada and I'm like what the fuck and then you hear things about the states and you're like what the fuck you know that it's, it's like so different because I mean like I would argue you know if I was to have a child or break my nose or break my arm like our system is better like hands down a hundred percent I can go in and it's free and I will never see a bill I've never had a medical bill in my life but for mental health, it's totally different, which is, yeah, it's so funny through the, um, you know, Trump administration, everybody being like, I'm going to pick up and move to Canada. Well, one, you can't really do that. Um, it doesn't really work like that. And two, I would never do that because of my mental illness, right? Like this is why I private pay for $500 a month insurance in the States. I could get Kaiser insurance for $150 a month, but I private pay for my specific insurance plan that has my providers in network that has a a wider array of services. I would never move to Canada because of the loss of my mental health services that are so easily accessible for me in the States outside of the fact that I pay $500 a month just for the insurance, but like, yeah, but I mean, we pay insurance too, right? Like that, like our taxes are insurance for medical and we pay private insurance for like work. So, um, and it's still so, so few mental health services are included in that. It's wild. Yeah. It's funny though. Cause I was, ta- this is such a tangent, Lucia. I'm so sorry. We're like going on this weird tangent. No, like, no, it's well, great. I'm a dual citizen, right? So I could live in the States whenever I wanted. And so I was talking to my husband last night about this and I was like, would you ever want to move to the States? Because like, realistically we could get him citizenship after a certain period of time. And then he would have dual citizenship, which is helpful. And he's like, no, like <laughs> not even, not even a question. And like, even my dad, he worked he worked in the States for a while and he lived in Canada just because of our healthcare, because he was like, fuck that. I'm not going to get a heart attack and have to file bankruptcy if I live in the States kind of thing. So anyways, super interesting, but long story short, Lucia, like I totally, I'm so curious to know if BPD was mentioned on your file prior to you having awareness of it, because that happens so often. It's absolutely unreal. Yeah, because I remember like there was someone on the podcast that talked about that. I I can't remember who, who it was or what episode, but like did talk about that. I think she, yeah, she found out that it was on her on her chart, um, or, or yeah, her her files, and then she like didn't know about it for like years. So I mean, I think that's like really worth potentially looking into, like figuring out the process of, of getting that. I don't, yeah, I don't know too much about that, but um. Yeah, because it was always just mood disorder. Like we don't really know, like what's like category, like put in a category. So we'll just say that. Um, but yeah, but then finally, like I was, I able, I I saw it was seeing a new psychiatrist during COVID, um, like the start of COVID. Um, and I said, like I think I'm having like these are symptoms that I've had for like a long time. Like I think I have this. And like, we talked about it and he was like, yes, like I'm, I'm diagnosing you with borderline personality disorder, um, which was both helpful and validating, but also like 
devastating for me um, at that point. Like I, 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 and it was kind of like the tip, like the stereotypical, like this feels like a death sentence. Like what even is this? Like I'm going to have, I would like look it up and it's like chronic, like chronic lifelong. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm going to have this forever. There's no medications that are specific for it. Like I really just felt like quite fucked um, for like probably that first year. I was really, I really struggled with, um, with that diagnosis, but, and also at the same time, like finally knowing like what was going on, because like, while I didn't necessarily know that, like, not everyone like thinks like this or acts like this, um, it was still, yeah, it was still just like, it, it just like explained a lot and was, it just made complete sense. Um, but was hard. (laughs) Totally. And that is like beyond common, right? Like it's hard for so many people. And that's partly due to the stigma that we read about online, right? Because like, yeah, you Google it and you're like, the fuck? Like, am I going to just die or end up in jail? Or like, you know what I mean? All these things. It's like, no, no, no. That's not actually the reality of like what most of us experience. Um, So I like, spoiler alert, I know that you've gone through dialectical behavior therapy and some other cool therapies. So how did you start um, DBT? Yeah. So, so I got the, yeah, the diagnosis and then kind of immediately went in the mode of like, okay, like how, like what, what can I do, um, here? And I actually did, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly medication resistant and sensitive. And so like in the time that I worked with that psychiatrist, um, and I worked with him, I think for two years, I had tried like 12 different, 12 to 13 different medications. And it just like either like the side effects we're not going away and we're too extreme or it just like, I'd be on it for a while and it just wasn't really working. So that was kind of like not, you know, being effective. And, um, and then I looked into DBT and kind of, you know, again, like in the States, I don't know how it is in Canada, but like in the States, it's like usually DBT groups are like wait lists, like long wait lists. And so I waited for a few months, but not as bad as some people where they're waiting like a year, um, which I feel really like fortunate and grateful about. And there's only a couple programs in Maine um, for DBT. So I eventually got into a DBT program, a year long DBT program, which is great because there's some like six month and then year, year ones. And I was able to do the year one and that was really the game changer in, in my, um, BPD recovery journey. Like it just really, it was incredibly effective. And I felt like the first like half maybe was like, it was like, I had to get a little bit into it and I was still pretty like resistant to accepting the diagnosis and that this is like now something that I'm going to need to like handle. (laughs) Um, but the last half was really, I was really in my groove about it and I was using the skills and doing the homework and it was really like working, uh, in terms of like my relationships or my dysregulation, um, you know, my, um, my negative coping skills, like with self-harm or the suicidal ideation or like drug and alcohol use. Um, it was just really effective. And I'm so, I'm so grateful for doing it because I really think it is like one of the main pillars in, in my recovery. Totally same. And I think Sarah, probably same. Yeah. Um, we were so proud of you when you graduated and it was just like for the listeners who weren't around, it was so cute because her friends made her a cake that was like, congratulations, graduating DBT. And I was like, that is the best. How come nobody did that for me? Um, and just like, um, I don't know if you, we can always cut this if you're not comfortable, but are you comfortable if we talk about the fact that you're in super feelers? Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, so Lucia is like, uh, well, like well attending member of super feelers. She comes basically all the time. And what's amazing is that like over the last two years of super feelers, we can like totally see that you're using your DBT skills like so well, right? Because it's one thing to know them. And then it's one thing to like integrate them into your life. And then it's the other thing to like do it subconsciously and to be able to really like explain DBT skills. I think that kind of comes with that final step. And like, you just clearly have taken DBT and ran with it and just like, so proud of you. Thank you so much. Yeah. I definitely like, 
I feel like almost at this point, it's like, I won't even, cause there's so many skills and like acronyms that it can get a little like overwhelming, like which skill is best for the situation. Um, cause I was getting a little bit caught up in that, but I feel like now I'm just like, I am doing them without even being like, Oh, I just use the Copa head skill or like dear man. Um, which is like so amazing. I feel like that's one of the things that people say about DBT is like, once you learn it, you know, you can't really like un- unlearn it. So, um, yeah, I'm so happy that I, I did that program. It is amazing. But then sometimes like you just want to have that like quick release of a freak out and then move on instead of the slow burn of like, okay, I'm dysregulated. I have to use my skills. Okay. My skills are going to work, but it's going to be like slower. And like, I have to be vulnerable and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's so hard because it's like, once you know better, you have to do better. But like, I don't always want to do better. Yes. No, exactly. Like hundred percent though. Like, I think we all like know the skills and then we're just like, yeah, fuck it. I don't want to use it today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause that self-awareness is almost like blaringly loud in my ear, but like sometimes, yeah, sometimes I'm just like, I, this is a perfect, like time to use the tip skill. Like I'm at a 10 or like I'm at an eight or a nine, like, but I don't fucking want to, I want to do this negative coping skill. And so it's like kind of, but then other times I'm like, I'm using the skills and that's more effective and more of a better end result. But yeah, sometimes I'm just like, fuck the skills. (laughs) I feel like there's some, um, parts about like borderline that I feel like the skills, and maybe this is just my personal experience, but like the skills don't, aren't effective. Like, I don't know if you guys experience like kind of the, the BPD void where like nothing is really like being triggered, but it's just like this deep, like, like sense of just like not being tethered to anything and like no sense of like identity and just like it's just a really like uncomfortable place to be like really depressed. And it's like nothing even like happened. And it sometimes just happens. And I feel like in those, those moods, I kind of just have to white knuckle through it. And, um, and there's nothing that really like helps me during that. I don't know if you guys know what I'm talking about or like experience that. Totally. I don't think that DBT speaks at all to that, um, unstable sense of self. I think it speaks really well to the distress that we feel when we have that, but sometimes it's not distressing. You're just like, well, I don't know who the fuck I am. And I have like a 12 hour block of time today. And like, I don't know what I like to do. And I don't know where I like to go. I don't even know how to choose something on Netflix. So like, I'm just going to dick around and not enjoy any of it. You know, like DBT doesn't really help for those situations that aren't distressing. They're just nagging. And I think when you have a mood disorder, right? Like Lori has um, dysthymia. I have major depression. You probably have major depression if you've done TMS, which we have to get into. But like when you have a mood disorder co-occurring with borderline, right? The emptiness of depression is more of like a fucking vast canyon and DBT doesn't talk to that. No. Yeah, no, it doesn't. It doesn't at all. And it's just this very, it just, yeah. And it sometimes happens. It doesn't necessarily happen like all the time, but it's just like, Oh, this is happening again. Like I literally can't not feel anything else. Like it's just so yeah. Like a vast (laughs) canyon. Yeah. I I have, go ahead, Lori. I don't even know what skills do work for that. Like even outside of DBT, like that seems to be kind of a weird, yeah. Like even just like a void in itself of like, what do you do to try and mitigate that issue? Different distressing. It's different distressing. I have been And my divorce really allowed me to do this because I could mask and hide that through being a wife and particularly through being a wife in a very specific subculture of the community, right? Being a law enforcement wife. Um, And then all of a sudden I lost that, which was like the major pillar of my identity. And then it was drinking, right? And I had to get that phase out. And then it was like, I'm a fucking slut and I had to get that phase out, right? And now it's like, 
I have really embraced play. So like in the last six months, obviously, like you've seen me do so much more art, so much more writing, like trying new things, like, um, because I can't always get out to a trail and hike. Like I live in the city. That's not very accessible to me. And I've just been letting myself play. Like I let myself buy new things to try to play with and be like, do I like, do I like painting? Okay. Nope. But like, I tried it. I, but I really love fucking making, you know, resin art and I really love coloring and whatever, but like, I very intentionally in the last six months have like played just to see. And I wonder, do you do that? Like, do you let yourself spend money on things that you might not enjoy just to see if you would like it? I think right now I don't. And I, that's actually like something I talk about with my therapist because like, I don't, yeah. Cause like, since that huge, like, no, like lack of identity and like, I don't really have passions and hobbies per se. Like, I mean, I really like find a lot of enjoyment in like reading and like being with other people and like going to new places in Maine and like hiking and like doing new things. But in terms of like, oh, I'm like, an artist or a writer, I'm, I don't really have those, um, those hobbies. And then it is hard for me to be like, oh, well, like I'll spend money on to just see if I, if I, if I do like something. So that's something I am currently actually working on with my therapist. Dude, I would seriously suggest giving yourself like a $50 limit and going and buying like a couple random things that you can do on your own in your apartment that's like easily accessible and just being like, do I like this? Because what's the worst case that's going to happen? 50 bucks isn't going to like break your future retirement, right? You're not going out and buying a motorcycle. And if you don't like it, give it to a friend. But like you can play, right? And see if there's something you like and see if there's something that sticks. Yeah, I love that. That idea of like of play and just like almost kind of like tapping into sort of that inner like child, like play like of what do I like? And like, do you know, paint, do I like painting or do I like skiing or doing hot yogurt, like whatever, um, which I feel like I never also did. I never really had like hobbies as like a child or like in high school. Um, so yeah, I think that's a really good idea. So fill us in really briefly. We only have a few minutes, but you've done transcranial you tell us what you've done. <laughs> yes. Um, so I did, yes, yeah, so I did a one round of uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, uh, TMS. And um, I, I, I did that because my, my psychiatrist and I were sort of coming to a, an ending point because that was the psychiatrist that I was seeing who, you know, I had tried like 13 different medications and like nothing was like working. And so he was just like, well, <laughs> I don't really have anything else. Like, for you to try, let's try these other, you know, um, treatments. And so there he recommended ketamine, the ketamine infusion treatments or the TMS. And I wasn't, a, I originally was going to want to do the ketamine treatments, but I wasn't a candidate because I, um, I had disclosed that I like had smoked weed and sometimes still smoke weed. And they were like, okay, you're not doing, t- you're not doing ketamine, <laughs> um, which it's fine. Um, and so I did TMS, I think it was for a month, a month or two. Um, and yeah, and it was every, it was every day for, I think it was like half an hour. The whole point was like half an hour, but I think it was only 20 minutes of the TMS actual, um, treatment and the TMS treatment that I did was just, was just targeting depression. It wasn't like targeting like anxiety or, cause I know there are other options that target like, um, helping to stop smoking cigarettes, um, and another, but I was focusing more on the depression because at that point I was incredibly depressed and, um, experiencing really, really intense suicidal ideation, probably the most I've ever in my life. Um, and it was just getting to a scary place. And we were like, should I go to the hospital? Like, should I go to like an inpatient? Like it was just getting like really bad. Um, and so we were like, no, let's just try the TMS and then, and then see if I'm going to need that extra, like higher level of care after. And it was just like phenomenal. Like I, 
it was incredibly effective for me and only doing one round. Cause sometimes, you know, people need like another round or another half round, but the first one just really worked for me instantly. And the suicide ideation was pretty much all gone. And I mean, not like that. I was like cured of my depression forever, but like the suicidal ideation was incredibly low. The depression was incredibly low. It was really just the anxiety and the BPD that were like, you know, still like a continuous problem. Um, but yeah, I just didn't have, and I, the self-harm was very low and it was just incredibly effective. And I'm so grateful that my insurance, like it was all covered. Um, and yeah, I would just highly recommend TMS to people if they're, you know, um, if that's appropriate for them for depression, for sure. Maybe we'll put a link in the chat, like explaining what that is just so that people can kind of look into it. But um, you said, sorry, it was every day for half an hour for how long? Like, I think it was like, I think the every day was for, was for a month. And then the last few weeks it was like tapered off and it was like every, it was every other day. And then, and then I like completed the program. So it was like, definitely it's a commitment. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a commitment. Um, and you're safe to drive, you know, yourself, you know, home after it's not like heading anywhere you have to like have someone get you, but it's definitely like a commitment that you're doing it every day, you know? So, um, but it's worth it. I mean, it was, it was definitely worth it for me. Well, that's really good to hear. I I think that you're the first person that I know that has done that. And, um, I remember you saying that it was like super incredibly valuable. So like, I mean, the, the every single day commitment, like that would deter a lot of people, I feel like, but the fact that you were able to push through it is amazing. Yeah. And I'm, I was very lucky with like the job that I had that I was, that was an accommodation that, you know, was met because like, I know a lot of people wouldn't be able to do that with their, with, you know, their a lot of jobs. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very like fortunate in, in that way as well. And I, I've just felt very like fortunate and grateful. Like all, everything's always been covered. Like pretty much everything except for Montanito was a little bit out of pocket, but even then it's like, medications have been covered. Therapy's been covered. PHP programs I've done along the way have been covered. So, um, yeah, I'm really grateful in that. Cause I know that's not the case for a lot of people, unfortunately. I am really lucky. I think hearing you say you took 13 different medications. I mean, that's fucking exhausting. And I'm just feeling grateful that, you know, I've tried my fair share probably like five or six or seven, but 13, holy shit. Have you ever done genetic testing to see what meds? Yeah. And so I did do genetic testing when I was in college, um, with one of the psychiatrists that I was like seeing and like, that was helpful working with him. And then like, I would, when I was worked with a few after I was like, I did this genetic testing. They were like, Oh, okay. Like send it over. But I don't think they ever really like cared to look at it. And I'd kind of be like, Oh, well, this medication says on the genetic testing, that's actually is not going to work, work well. And then they would be like, Oh, okay. Like, well, I don't know about the genetic testing. Like, well, like it was in, it wasn't, I don't feel like it was super utilized or like respected was the other psychiatrist that I, I was seeing. Um, but I think it was just like helpful for me to be like, okay, this class is definitely, I'm going to have an adverse like reaction to, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's been rough and it was incredibly like discouraging and all like ho- the horrible, like side effects and withdrawal symptoms of getting off certain medications were really, really bad. Um, and I'm actually like on, on one right now, that's been the only one that's ever worked in my life, which is gabapentin for my anxiety. Cause I, I'd say the anxiety and the BPD are like the, the, the biggest issues like throughout my life. Um, and that's been like incredibly effective for me, the gabapentin and which is like a godsend because my anxiety just really has been out of like control. Um, so I am on medication now, but I would say like the pairing, like, or the combination of like the DBT, the TMS, and now this medication has really been like a sweet spot for me in terms of my like recovery. I love that for you. That's so wonderful. Um, Lucia, I am sure there's going to be more and more time for you on this podcast, but 
What would you say is like your number one takeaway for folks listening? What is the most important part of your story that you really want highlighted for people? Yeah. I mean, I think just like to know that like BPD isn't necessarily like a death sentence and that there's like a lot of resources um, that, you know, that people can tap into if that's something that like is accessible. And even if it's not like, you know, a treatment like TMS or DBT, because the wait lists and, and financial, there's like workbooks, like there's a really good BPD workbook by um, Dr. Fox. That's like you can do on your own. So I think just like really um, being gentle with yourself and putting your mental health recovery first and like using the skills like DBT, like really, again, just to highlight that that was really a game changer for me and my, my symptoms. And, and basically to just like not give up because I know like BP looks different for everyone, but you know, I, I do kind of have like the hope or the idea that, you know, remission is a possible, like has happened for people and is a possibility and like to age and to age out of symptoms. Um, like I, it's, it's wild to think of the, the things that I used to like think and do compared to where I'm at now. Like, it's just wild to think about the vast difference between, you know, how I've been in the past and now, and just to know that it's just going to get better. Um, so yeah. And thank you so much for having me on here. I just, I love you guys so much. We love you so much. Lori, do you have any last minute thoughts, questions? No, just, it was really nice to hear your story kind of from the beginning because we've been interacting with you and super feelers and, and just been loving you for almost two years now. And it's just like, so interesting to hear like from start to finish. And I think that, that piece about entering the world that was too loud for you from the beginning, it will stick with me forever. So I just really appreciate you starting that far back. Um, that was really, really powerful. Hi friends. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the bold, beautiful borderline podcast. Lori and I are so grateful that you're here with us on this journey and we can't wait to dive into more topics in the future with you all about borderline and even have some more fun and exciting guests to join us on the podcast. If you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you would rate review and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We would also love to see you interact with us on social media and on our Patreon page. The links to that are included in the show notes. So check us out there. We would be incredibly honored to get to know you all as you get to know us and our recovery stories. We love you. And-